Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails. We are two friends who love true crime, and this is the podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. To go with this week's case, I'm enjoying a Long Island iced tea. What drink are you pairing this case with, Jenny? I'm still on that mango Rita Dell. I'm just babysitting this bad boy. Nice. For this week's case, we'll be talking about a mysterious fire and five missing siblings that vanished almost 100 years ago. This is the case of the missing Sodder children. So our case starts on Christmas Eve 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny Sodder lived with nine of their ten children, John, Marion, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny Jr., and Sylvia. Their eldest son was in the Army at the time. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty had asked to stay up late that night. Mother Jenny obliged as long as the children did their chores on the farm, turned off the house lights, and locked up the house for the night. And it's important to note uh, with this case that George and Jenny had a first floor bedroom where they were sleeping with baby Sylvia. And on this night, Marion had fallen asleep on the couch in their living room. Otherwise, the children shared two bedrooms that were both upstairs. At around 1230, Jenny awoke to answer a strange phone call. An unknown woman was on the line asking for someone Jenny didn't know. When she told the woman that she had the wrong number, the woman then laughed and abruptly hung up. Jenny then noticed that the house was quiet, all the lights were on, and the front door was unlocked, so despite having told the children to take care of this. Assuming the children were asleep and had forgotten to do these tasks, she returned to bed. Not long after that, Jenny awoke to a loud bang on the roof, followed by the noise of something rolling off. And between 1 and 1.30 a.m., George and Jenny realized a fire had broken out in their home when smoke seeped into their bedroom. They safely escaped along with John, Marion, George Jr., and Sylvia. George believed the rest of the children, the children who had asked to stay up late, were trapped in their bedroom upstairs. The stairway leading up to the second floor was now on fire, making it unsafe to reach them. I haven't seen any resources saying that the family or neighbors around heard anyone screaming, so that's something of note as well. So when he realized that the children were upstairs, most likely, George decided to grab a ladder that was always next to the house, but couldn't find it that night. He then decided he'd drive his truck over to the house, stand on the car, and help the children escape through the window. However, neither of his cars would start, despite working fine the day before. Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department, but there was no operator response. A neighbor called from a local tavern as well, and again, there was no response. The same neighbor actually drove into town and found the fire chief, F.J. Morris, who then phoned the rest of the department with their phone tree system. And a phone tree, in this case, just meant that one fire would notify the other and notify the other, so the whole team was aware. I'm not sure how common that is for things today. Obviously not for a fire department. (laughs) Um, It should also be noted, you know, we're in 1945, Fire departments at the time didn't really have sirens, and this was a very rural community. Um, So for the uh, Fayetteville Fire Department, the operator had to be called, and then they would contact the firefighters, and then the phone tree system would start. 
So seven hours after the fire began, the fire department finally arrived, but the house had burned in less than an hour. And it should also be noted that the Sodders only lived about two, two and a half miles from the fire station. Chief Morris said the delay was due to the Christmas holiday. Uh, I've also seen resources saying that he didn't know how to drive the fire engine and had to wait for someone else to get there, which <laughs> I don't. I don't know how many people were driving in 1945. I think a lot. Uh, if someone is the chief, I don't really understand why they can't drive the truck. Exactly. Like, but... how did you get your job? <laughs> like, it, yeah. Um, and also, I don't think fires take a holiday. <laughs> um, I know, like, nowadays, we know that Christmas trees get set on fire a lot. Probably wasn't. I mean, it could have been the case back then. I don't know, but. They said that they couldn't get there because of the holiday. So the fire completely destroyed the Sodder house, and there were no bones or remains of the five children found in the rubble. The fire department and the police did a quick uh, cursory search, again, due to the holiday. Chief Morris claimed that the fire was hot enough to completely cremate the bodies of the five missing children. However, appliance remains were found in the fire, in the rubble of the fire. The coroner also said the fire was caused by a faulty wiring. But Dell, remember, Jenny said the lights were on when she woke up from the phone call. And some of the children also said the lights were on when the fire was burning inside the house. So if there was faulty wiring, would the lights really have been on just 30 minutes prior to the fire? I think that it's a possibility, but... It's still something to be considered. The coroner issued death certificates for the five children, but George and Jenny weren't happy with these answers and began to believe their children were still alive and that the fire was a diversion. The family began remembering strange things that didn't seem significant at the time, but could po possibly be related to the fire. Several months before the fire, George remembered a man asking about farm work who came to their house and claimed there would be a fire one day after looking at the fuse box. It is important to note that George had had the fuse box checked before this occurrence and there was nothing wrong. Not long after that, a mysterious man selling insurance came to the house and got agitated with George saying, your goddamn house is going up in smokes and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to pay for the dirty remarks that you've been making about Mussolini. Very specific and very suspicious. So with that, here's some more background on George and Jenny. George had immigrated to the United States from Italy when he was 13, and he had immigrated with his brother, but shortly after clearing Ellis Island, his brother actually went back, but George stayed, mm -hmm. and he was essentially on his own. Um, he never explained why he left Italy. Jenny uh, had also immigrated at the age of three from Italy. They settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia, where which had an active Italian immigrant community, and they were a well-respected family. George was indeed very outspoken against Mussolini and his fascist regime, but he didn't take the man's threat seriously. Um, also, there was some reports of there being some hostility because some of the other Italian immigrant families were still loyal to Mussolini. So George Sauter being so outspoken against Mussolini caused some type of uh, agitation within the community. And the oldest Sauter's son 
remembers a man watching the children uh, as they came home from school not long before Christmas. So after they're starting to piece these memories together, George and Jenny take matters into their own hands. Uh, Jenny actually began experimenting with animal bones to see if they would completely burn in a fire, which of course they didn't. She even spoke to a funeral home director who told her that even after burning for two hours at 2,000 degrees, bone fragments will still remain. Remember, the solder home fire only lasted about 45 minutes to an hour. So for everything to be gone is kind of implausible, really. And this was just the tip of the iceberg. A phone repairman had told the solders that their phone lines had been cut after the fire. A neighbor had also seen a man on the night of the fire carrying tools, I believe a bait and tackle, to remove car engines, explaining why George's cars likely weren't working that night. Um, There was actually a hard rubber object found in the ashes of the fire, too, which the family concluded was related to the loud noise that Jenny had heard before the fire began. And George believed this to be a pineapple napalm bomb, which was a common weapon used during the war that had been going on. Um, And sightings of the children began popping up, too. Uh, Not too significantly yet, but people did have memories of them. Um, Someone claimed to see the children from a passing car on the night of the fire, on the night of their disappearance while the fire was raging. A woman operating a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, which is about 50 miles west, uh, said that the chil- she saw the children the morning after the fire. She told police she served them breakfast, and there was a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court, too. A woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photos in a newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. Uh, She told police the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. I don't remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began rapidly talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. Pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so detailed. I think that's the thing that gets me, is detail. You clearly know that she knew what was going on, so it's a sense of why didn't the police take this account more seriously? Yeah, women's intuition, like they said. Mm -hmm. Um, So two years later, George and Jenny sought help from the FBI, but the local police and fire departments actually declined their assistance. Uh, We'll talk about that a little more in depth later. Uh, But the ball finally started rolling when the family hired private investigator C.C. Tinsley. He discovered that the strange insurance man who had appeared months before was months before the fire was a member of the coroner's jury which is a group of people called to assist a coroner in declaring a corpse's identity and cause of death. Tinsley also learned a rumor that Chief Morris allegedly told a local minister that he found a heart in the rubble of the fire and buried it. 
Tinsley asked Chief Morris to show him the heart, but it turned out that it was actually beef liver that he had hidden. Um, Rumors flared again, saying that Chief Morris had buried that liver to get the Sodders to stop investigating. He claims that he did it to give the Sodders peace, and I guess to prove, okay, the children were in the fire and here is part of them. This has to be one of the craziest aspects of this case. Yes. I I don't understand what the point of him doing this is. It's very, I don't really see why it would give them peace or throw them off. It makes him look much more suspicious, in my opinion. Right, absolutely. And it's a thing of, you want them to believe at the same time that one of their children's heart was found, but none of the bones were. Yes, exactly. It's wild. It's This case definitely has the privilege of taking place so long ago. I would be so curious if this something like this were to happen today, if we could solve it. Right. And I think the accountability would have been a lot higher for the fire chief because there's no way that a current fire chief would get away with doing something like that now. Mm hmm. But, you know, Drew's and Jenny did everything they could to find their children. More sightings of the children came in from across the country as word of the disappearance spread. People claimed that the children were living with Jenny's family, that they had been taken to Italy, and that Martha was in a coven. Uh, George believed he saw a New York City uh, newspaper photo of Betty, who was five at the time of the disappearance. So he actually traveled to New York City, but the girl's family refused to speak with him. In 1949, the family hired a D.C. pathologist, Oscar B. Hunter, to excavate the scene. He found shards of vertebrae that were sent to the Smithsonian which claimed they showed no signs of fire damage and belonged to a 16 or 17-year-old boy. The older daughter, son that was missing was 14-year-old Maurice, so the bones likely weren't from any of the children. And I think it's just, one, it's so weird that they were able to send bones to the Smithsonian for analysis, but mm-hmm. <laughs> also no signs of fire damage, which means that you know, where did these bones come from? How did they get there? Um, (laughs) It's still weird that human bones were found. And I'm not sure if there's been any real talk of whose bones those actually were. Damien also reported on the strange fact that no other bones were found and said that likely full skeletons of the children should have been found. The report concluded that vertebrae was likely in the supply of dirt George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. Despite this new information, the police still considered the case to be closed. So, in order to drum up some more um, support for their case, George and Jenny actually put up a billboard in Fayetteville in 1952 with photos of the children and offered a $5,000, then $10,000 reward for information, leading to the recovery of their missing children. And it remained there for decades. In 1967, Jenny received the envelope addressed just to her. The envelope was postmarked in Kentucky but had no return address. In it, was a photo of a man in his 20s, along with the cryptic message that Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35. 
Drews and Ginny believe the photo was of their son, Lewis, who was nine at the time of his disappearance. They said the man in the photo had the same eyes, hair, nose, and eyebrows as Lewis. This photo actually led to the Sodders to hire a private investigator to travel to Kentucky, but the investigator was never heard from again. They never published the letter fearing for Lewis's safety, but they did add the photo to the billboard. George died in 1968, but before his death, he said in an interview, quote, time is running out for us, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them, end quote. Jenny died in 1989, but asked for her children and grandchildren to never stop searching. So I'm not sure if Sylvia, the youngest child, is alive today. If she is, she would be in her 70s, but she doesn't believe her siblings died in the fire that night. Uh, One theory the family has is that the local mafia had tried to recruit George and he declined, or that they tried to extort money from George and he refused. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. They might not have survived that night. If they did, and if they lived for decades, if it really was Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. So, Del, after hearing this wild case, what do you think could have happened to these children? So, honestly, my theory is that the Sider children were abducted and killed by individuals connected to Mussolini. Uh, George Sauter, as we spoke about before, he left Italy mysteriously when he was 13, and he never spoke about why he left, and he never returned to his birth country. I think this is really suspicious because he was known to be outspoken about current events, business, and politics, and he regularly expressed his strong dislike for Mussolini. Um, And one of his strong opinions actually caused someone to threaten him and his family, as we previously stated. I believe this person and others wanted to punish George for disrespecting Mussolini. It could have been the insurance salesman or someone connected to the Italian mob. Um, I actually read that another person came to the house and stated that the faulty wiring would cause a fire someday, as we talked about. And this is so important because the world's worst fire chief, Fire Chief Morris, insisted (laughs) that the faulty wiring caused the fire. But again, George had the firing checked out one week before the fire. Uh, The mob could have had the fire chief on the payroll to help cover up the crime because I find it so suspicious that he's that incompetent. Like, how did you manage to rise to the level of being a fire chief and be that incompetent? You don't just become incompetent when you become fire chief. So, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, to the question of, well, why didn't they just hurt the, you know, George Sauter? The Italian mom is known to use families to hurt people, and they could have figured that it would have been more hurtful for him to not know where five well, five of his children are and to be, you know, he lived the rest of his life in despair and in hurt because he didn't know what happened to his child. And that could be exactly what the um, Italian mob was looking for and what they were thinking about doing. So that's my theory. What's yours? So my theory is pretty similar to yours and what the family thinks. So I think locals with connections to the mafia were irritated with George and his political opinions and wanted to get revenge on him by kidnapping the children. Uh, I think the children were either sold privately or put up for adoption somehow. Um, This wasn't that unheard of at the time. Children were taken from their families and put into other homes 
again, this was 1945, and I know that wasn't too long ago, but it was a lot easier to get away with crimes back then. Um, I do think that the picture that was sent to Jenny is of Lewis Sauter and that none of the children most likely reached out, didn't reach out because they were fearing for their safety um, as well as the safety of their parents. I wish we knew who this insurance man was and if he had lived in the town, because I do believe that he played a part in either committing the crime or was just used to intimidate George, maybe to get him to stop speaking his mind. And that didn't stop George. George didn't really think of it as suspicious at the time. So I guess that goes to show how strong-willed he was. Um, I do not think that they died in the fire. There's, in my opinion, really no evidence for it. There's no physical evidence to show that. And it's clear that either the police were lying or, like you said, Del, they just flat out did not know what they were doing and didn't know how to handle the scene and the case. I don't know if there was a lot of crime going on in Fayetteville, West Virginia in 1945. Uh, I would assume maybe not. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, But I'm not sure. I also would like to know if the police and the fire department, what their ethnicity was, if they were Italian immigrants, could they have had conflicting views with George that made them more inclined to want to be involved in the crime, to cover up for the crime? There's so many unanswered questions in regards to the police. Um, I will say, so we're, it seems like there's a lot of cover up and secrecy in this case. And something to keep in mind is that as more people become involved in a secret, it is harder to keep that a secret. But if someone is threatening your life or paying you or has something against you, some kind of information to hold against you, you're going to probably keep that secret until your grave, which, I mean, Chief Morris is not around anymore and I would go out on a limb and say he knew something that he took to the grave. Um, I'm not sure if any of the Sodder's grandchildren have had their DNA tested, but I truly think that's one of the few things that could help solve this case at this point in time. We're almost a hundred years, you know, after this case has been committed, the children that were um, kidnapped could be alive today. I think the oldest one would be like 89 or in his early nineties. And that would be Maurice who was 14 when he went missing. Um, So they could very well be out there. Um, You do wonder though, you know, if they are later on in life, would they feel safe to come out and say something? Who knows? Right. Well, you know what? I don't know if they would, if the children are still alive, it could even be, especially the younger the child was, right? Because you had, Mm -hmm. like, Lewis. He was nine years old. Could have been a thing of them brainwashing the children if they're still alive to the point of, like, you know what, it's not even a point to come forward anymore. You know, I... I don't have a connection to my life as a solder. I have a connection to my life as, you know, fill in the blank for what their um, alias is. So you mentioned Lewis. Um, What do you think of the picture in that envelope? What do you think that message could mean? So, I mean, I definitely think that they were all killed, but I could see it being a thing of them keeping one of the children alive as an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. As a thing, well, you know, if... George gets out of line if maybe it because keep in mind the family they went to their grave believing something was up and not being able to reach mm-hmm. it so you know 
I think Lewis could have been kept alive just in case the family had become settled with what happened. Well, here, you have another link. You have another way to mess with them. You have another way to aggravate them. And it could also, unfortunately, be a thing of, you know, him not being alive, but whoever was responsible for his death still sending that letter to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen in other cases, too, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of these cases, how people do just like to become involved and um, send in fake pictures of people and send in fake letters saying, I'm here, I'm still alive, and then it's found to be false. So it could definitely be something, someone just messing with them. Um, I will say for the brother Frankie, Um, I know in my theory, I said that maybe he was adopted. Maybe his adoptive brother is named Frankie. Maybe he went to like a boy's home and he was close. So close to someone named Frankie. He was like a brother. Um, I will say the 90132 is actually um, a postal code for Palermo, Italy, um, which is a city in looks like one of the boot, one of the lower parts of Italy. Um, so again, that Italian connection, something possibly related to the mob, it seems like more evidence pointing to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what area of Italy Jenny is from, but George is from Sardinia. Um, and that I'm looking at it on a map right now. It's not close to Palermo. They're on kind of two different islands. Um, but again, something to consider that the private investigator, the family, the overlying thing is this mafia involvement and they are very, very powerful people. Right. And they, they're able to get to anyone. I think, you mm-hmm. know, in a lot of mob related cases, you can see people, you know, going across state lines, across country lines and the mob still being able to get them. So I think that, you know, Mussolini's connection to the mob, the Italian mob want to make sure that one of their own wasn't disrespecting Mussolini because it definitely led this to be um, a longer term uh, crime than just the initial kidnapping, whatever happened to them after, whether that was killing them pretty soon after um, breakfast, what it seems like, um, because the person mm-hmm. did uh, talk about having breakfast and then them leaving very quickly the next morning, or them selling them. The mafia has been involved in human trafficking, so it could be a thing of that maybe Lewis went to Kentucky, another sibling went somewhere else, and they could be scattered throughout the globe. Yeah, I I think that would be a smart idea on their behalf, too, because if the children are separated, there's no way they can find each other easily and maybe, you know, feel stronger together, stronger enough to come forward. Right. Absolutely. And it could be a thing of them not being able to even compare stories and to compare like, okay, this is where I'm from. This is who my family is. They're not able to do that. All they know is where the mafia allegedly put them. So let's talk a a little bit more about the fires because Mm -hmm. there is so many (laughs) things wrong with him. He is probably my least favorite character in this. And I know he's not the kidnapper, the murderer, the arsonist in this, but he is just so awful at everything. And the fact that he tried to gaslight the family just makes him Mm -hmm. even more disgusting to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
again, is it flat out incompetence? Is it covering up? Is it apathy? I mean, it could truly be all three and he was just lucky to get his position. I do find it weird as a fire chief, you would expect someone to know about fire and how fire works. And for him to tell them that, oh, all of the remains of the children are going to be gone because the fire was so hot. What is that? That's it's him misleading them or again, incompetence. I mean, if a crematory worker knows this, why wouldn't a firefighter know this information? Well, you also have to take into account that it took them seven hours to get two miles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I, it was, you know, when people were talking about this case elsewhere, they were saying that they could have walked like four or five mm-hmm. times back and forth in the time it took for them to actually arrive at the house. So yeah. to me, that, you know, forget the fact that, oh, it was a holiday. Firefighters are the one of the professions that there is no such thing as a holiday. You always have someone working, you know, a group of people working on that holiday. Um, so I find it hard to believe that no firefighters were working. I also find it hard to believe that he, the fire chief, didn't know how to operate a fire engine. He just... Mm-hmm. Maybe it's incompetent. Yeah, that's... Maybe it's... <laughs> Uh, corruption. I'm going to lean on corruption because I don't know how that one that someone that incompetent could become <laughs> a fire chief. Yeah, so going off of the fire chief and the police, why would they decline help from the FBI? <laughs> that makes no sense to me. If you this is probably something I'll say often and I know this is kind of a black and white way of thinking, which isn't always realistic. But if you don't have anything to hide, why act this way? Right. And I mean, it's not like the FBI is going to go out of their way to make you look like a fool. I mean, mm-hmm. it could have been something in his ego that said, oh, I don't want the FBI investigating because I'm this great investigator and, you know, I don't need their help. But it could also be a thing of he didn't want the FBI involved because he didn't think that he could trust them and he didn't want them to really uncover the truth. I mm-hmm. I will, you know, this is alleged. I have to say allegedly, but I do think that the fire chief was somehow involved in this crime yes whether it was during the planning or during the cover-up for this i think he was absolutely involved yeah um another thing to note too um the fire department was told by the neighbor that there were children in the house and i mean again it took them seven hours to get there you wouldn't think that trying to save children would be something of urgency and i'm sure i mean this fire was it destroyed the house in 45 minutes to an hour. I'm sure the people calling could see that it was a raging fire. Right. And that leads us to our next point about the faulty wiring, which they definitely kept stating the fire burned so quickly that as soon as George was awake and realized what was going on, it had already burned too much for him to safely go up the steps within his house. 
which doesn't mm-hmm. really connect to faulty wiring because that would be a more slow burn. You have sparks, you have it spreading out where it can versus it being an arson coming in or a bomb coming in, which will cause larger sparks, larger flames, and you would have it where it would destroy the house pretty quickly. So this whole faulty wiring story that they were trying to sell from the morgue and the coroner's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, again, it really doesn't seem like they ever did a well-done search and excavation of the ashes of the Sodder's house. It was Christmas, they were too busy, and (laughs) I couldn't really find any information on them coming back. Um, I know it. Cl- they claim to possibly find some like bones and human remains, but no one smelled flesh burning at the site. And again, um, there were kitchen appliances that you could tell what it was. They weren't, you know, completely destroyed, but they weren't fully intact either. Right. And it goes back to remember when George went inside the house, he didn't hear the children screaming and you would figure mm-hmm. if you were trapped inside a fire you would be yelling your face off you would not be yeah. quietly you wouldn't still be asleep um and i've heard people say that when children are in fires sometimes they will hide in a closet under a bed because they're scared and i don't really know what fire you know we're taught in school like fire safety i don't think that was happening but you would think still you would hear them screaming even if they are hiding somewhere since. And then I guess going off of that, who is this insurance man? I mean, we, CeCe Tinsley with the private investigator was able to find out that he was part of the coroner's jury, but we don't have his name. We don't know if he was a local, where he was from, if he really was an insurance man, even. I think he is a big part of this case. Absolutely. And it's a big red flag that he wasn't found because it's not like that was the most common profession at the time. The most popular insurance people were war insurance people um, where, where they sold insurance just in case you got hurt um, fighting. So this was definitely someone that people would have known if he was actually selling insurance. And quite frankly, I think that it was someone that just used insurance as a cover-up for who they really were. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that he was definitely tied to the mafia and he was the middleman. So he was the one organizing everything at the behest of the Italian mob. I I would definitely agree with that. And I really would like to know some more about him. But I mean, at this point, who knows? I don't, I did want to say, too, so the woman that said that she served the family breakfast or the children breakfast, um, she said that there was a Florida license plate, a car with a Florida license plate in the parking lot of the rest stop. And I did some research and Florida did have a large Italian immigrant population. I guess it still does today, but at the time it did. So, again, you know, possible mafia connections, it would make sense. I mean... I'm sure people that are very powerful and that do know how to commit a crime, you know, who knows if those really were Florida plates, they could have, you know, swapped the plates out. Exactly. Exactly. Especially considering that one picture had came Kentucky and not Florida. Um, I definitely think it's a possibility also. So I could definitely see them, you know, driving up from Florida, organizing this crime, committing the crime, and then going right back down. 
so that you don't have everyone connected um, locally to the case. Yeah. And again, if this had happened today, I mean, we probably could have had cameras watching their every move. Absolutely. And you you could attract them through their phone, through whatever purchases they made. So I don't know. At this point, I think it's very slim chances that this will be solved. And it's a very frustrating case just hearing how this family was lied to whether the police knew they were lying or not they gave them misinformation and like we said george and jenny spent their whole lives searching for their children and just wanting the truth i mean george said you know if they did die in the fire just convince me i mean he knew that was a possibility so sylvia and her children do visit web sleuths and other websites um and they ask anyone with information to post it there actually um but i did find information for the fayetteville police department um you can reach them at 304-574-0255 i'm sure you could also contact an fbi field office in west virginia um i know the case is considered closed but if anyone has any information maybe family stories of something like this definitely share it with them that wraps up this week's case let us know what you think happened to the children Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe. You can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Alexa Pods. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and Twitter at Charade Inc. And please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. This is Dale and Jenny signing off. Stay safe.